Amen. Our scripture lesson today comes from Jesus' little brother James, chapter 1. Let's share in God's good word together. Blessed is anyone who endures temptation. Such a one has stood the test and will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. No one, when tempted, should say, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself tempts no one. But one is tempted by one's own desire, being lured and enticed by it. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. It's been said that technology makes a tremendous servant, but a terrible master. This month, we're exploring how we can avoid the perils and unleash the promise of technology. You all feel better or worse after you've been scrolling for an hour? Worse. Worse. Yeah. It depends on my day. Why, why do you think we do that then? I mean, if we know we're going to like we scroll, we scroll for an hour and then we feel worse. Why do we do that? I think it's just habit. I like often feel worse because it's like, I'll get home, you know, talk to my mom about my day. She listens. And then I'll go to my room and then I'll like scroll and then I'll look out my window and it's dark outside. And I'll be like, I literally just wasted three hours and I could name maybe five things that I looked at. And so I feel worse because I've like, I feel like I've wasted all of this time. And I know that life is so precious. And so it's like, why did I waste my time doing that? But a lot of times I don't have anything else to do. Thank you to the students for helping out. Appreciate that. So actually, do you feel better or worse when you scroll? I asked them, I'll ask you, do you feel better after scrolling for an hour? No. Why do we do it? It's an odd phenomenon, isn't it? I want you to remember what Emma said. She goes, I feel worse because I feel like I've wasted all this time. And I know life is so precious. We know this in our bones. So it's like, why did I waste my time doing that? Why do we? Well, there is an answer, actually. There really is an answer. And it's been around for thousands and thousands of years for people who follow the way of Jesus. It's just that that answer requires us differently to live differently than the world around us. It really does. And quite frankly, many of us just don't want to. It's embarrassing, puts us out of step with our neighbors, might cost us a promotion. And, and so we find ourselves simply following the ways of the world because it's right there in the palm of our hand. Now, we don't have to go look for it. It's right there with us. It's so easy, isn't it, to, quote, to like, follow, and even subscribe to the ways of the world. So today we are in the very middle of our sermon series on what the tech, what the tech, what is going on with our world, the promise and perils of our digital age. And there is a real challenge with technology and temptation. And so we're going to look at the promise of technology. Um, we started off this series a number of weeks ago with Pastor Brandon Blackson, uh, our executive pastor here. Once you know, he is back out of the wilderness. He has killed a ram and eaten it <laughs> and with his bare hands. And he is, Courtney tells us he's fine. And so we are, look forward to having him back this next week. Uh, we celebrate with your family and all of us celebrate Brandon is good, alive, and coming home after wilderness training. So he talked to us about the promise of technology. And and in his message, he said that while technology promises us the power to do more with less, we now have more tech, surely we do, but less life satisfaction. And if you are um, in America and you're my age, less life expectancy too. By our own choices, by our own temptations. 
You see, what you do with your tech today has massive implications for your soul tomorrow. And we have to have this conversation. Because your soul is made up of the things you put into it. It really is. In the same way that you can't expect to be a buff bodybuilder eating Cheetos. I know I've tried. <laughs> what you put in your mind, in your soul, in your life, in your relationships has an implication for who you become. The trajectory of your life. And that's why the wisdom of Proverbs says, watch over your heart, your soul with all diligence for from it flows the springs of life. All of your life flows from your heart. John Mark Comer puts it um, very pointedly, uh, for those of you who don't know his writing, he is basically a disciple of Dallas Willard uh, and his writings. Uh, John Mark is in his 40s uh, and is a, a bestseller uh, author now uh, around the globe. Um, but this, he basically, this, he takes this thought from Dallas himself and he says, I have little reason to believe that people who have zero desire to live with Jesus and his community now in this life would want to be conscripted into that forever. And, and we've talked around this for a long time here, but we, I want you to take that seriously. You know, we have this Pollyanna view that, you know, all dogs go to heaven, all, so do all people. And, and every, it's open to everyone. Make no mistake. Jesus has come. But if you have chosen your entire life to say no, what makes you think you're going to change your mind? I mean, it's a real question for us to ask. It's not that Jesus isn't willing. It's that we're no longer here. We no longer respond because we no longer hear his voice. And I mean, not to make too much light of it, but anybody who's married understands this. You're, you're sitting in front of the TV or something and your husband or your wife calls and you don't hear it on first reference anymore. Sometimes you're lucky if you hear it at all. And then they're like, hey, did you hear me? You're like, no, I, di- I didn't. Did you say something? We can become so attuned to ignoring the voices of people that we say we love that it can be really dangerous for the outcomes of our life. Because what I find is that while Chantel rarely yells at me anymore, which is a great thing, social media does. It's a megaphone. Right? I mean, the, the things on my phone will scream at me or the things we see on our football uh, you know, screens will, will yell at us. And we find ourselves, we want to do one thing, but we wind up doing another. Why is that? Well, that's the human condition. Paul says so in his writings to the early church in Rome. He says, I do not understand my own actions. I don't do what I want. I do the very thing I hate. For I know that nothing good dwells within me that is in my flesh. I can will what is right, but I cannot do it. For I don't do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I do. So I find it to be a law, an axiom, it is the case, that when I want to do what is good, say with me, evil lies close at hand. Well, why is that? Now, some of what I'm going to talk about today is going to kind of bump up against our modern sensibilities. And I get that. Um, I'm a modern person myself. I consider myself a centrist. And, and I think there are two major temptations when it comes to temptation and evil and the devil. And that is that the people on my left don't give it nearly as much credit as it deserves and the ruin it has in the world. And the people on my right give it way too much credit. They see devil around every corner. And, and sometimes I'm like, that's just your bad behavior. Straighten up. Right? But, but there's, I really do think there's a place for the middle ground. Uh, and I want to present some of that to you today. So this week, I'm, I'm going to talk about something we all know. It's not like you're like, oh, temptation, what's that? All of us know temptation. Amen? Everybody in the room. And that is, this is, my own temp, this is my own definition. The desire to live a life without limit. 
There's lots of different sorts of ways to look at temptation. But basically, if you go all the way back to the third page in the Bible, right, Genesis 3, you're going to find that the first temptation is to know more than God, or at least equal to God, to not live with the limits that God has set in our life. And particularly in the Western world, we really bump up against this. We don't like this part at all. And so the Bible teaches us the story not about um, why snakes don't have legs necessarily, although you can read it that way, but why the world is as it is. Why we have the experiences that we do. Um, I, I want to attribute my understanding of this passage to Dr. William Power. He was my Hebrew professor at SMU at Perkins School of Theology. Um, higher education in theology, I think, is very important, uh, particularly these days, because there's a lot of misinformation out there. We'll talk more about that next week, discerning truth from fiction. Uh, but for today, let's start here at the beginning of the Bible. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other wild animal that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God say you shall not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden. Say this next part with me. Nor shall you touch it or you shall die. That's a lie. God didn't say that. She added to God's word. And some scholars would say that that's actually the first break because she felt the need to add to God's word, that God's word wasn't enough. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And what are you going to know? You're going to know good and evil. Well, what's not said here is that they only knew good. They were kids. They knew good and good. They didn't know about mortgages. They didn't know about car payments. They didn't know about cancer. They didn't know about death. All they knew was good. And some of you have little ones like that. All they know at three and four is good and good and good. I remember the first time that I was talking about death, as preachers do, at home uh, with my three-year-old. And He looked up at me and he just broke into tears. It never dawned on him that I was going to die. He's like, you're going to die too? I'm like, yeah. Like, as preachers, like, of course. Like, come on, kid. He's like, no. Chantel's like, hey, you're not preaching. They're like, you got a kid here. So I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, yeah, I'm going to die. Sorry, yeah. So, so this, is, this is the way it goes, isn't it? We're tempted to just kind of do what we do to show how smart we are. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband. Say it with me who was with her the whole time, and he ate. His husbands are silent at parties, right? I don't have to eat it. She'll get it for me. We're all right here, right? He wasn't duped into it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. Now, naked is not about their sexuality. It's about their vulnerability, right? These are early tribal people, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. You see, what happened is they they took knowledge they were not ready to receive. God didn't do it to them. They chose it. And what they found out was that they were unprotected, that they were vulnerable, that they were in danger. They began to see the world as adults, as it really is, but they were not adults. They didn't have the power to handle it, and it freaked them out. You see, friends, the ways that we try to protect ourselves, it can be comical. People in the earth, and when they read this, on first hearing, they thought it was hilarious. They're like, what? They took fig leaves? Do you all know what fig leaves in the Middle East look like? It's basically like our version of poison ivy. 
if you put it on yourself. It looks like this. That's the front side. You see, that is itchy stuff. That is not what you want to put on your privates. Not even close. The only thing worse is the backside. Even worse. And that's the part on your privates. If you think about it, it might look something like this. That's actually me at Ephesus. I mean, you know, like, ah, it's not something you're smart to do. And we think it's hilarious, except if it weren't so tragic, so painful, so dumb, and devastating to others. Because we, we say things like this, like, why would they do that? And then we ask, well, why do we? Why do we? Well, first of all, let's get this really clear. Temptation's not from God. God's not doing it to you. And God's feelings of love and care towards them did not change. Notice that God comes to the garden looking for them. He's not out to get them. He's trying to love them. But while God is always trying to connect with us, coming to us, there is another force. The Bible calls it the devil. And that's described as a tempter, a destroyer, a deceiver. All of these things in the Bible. That there is actually a force working against God in the world. Maybe you've sensed that in your own life. Adam Hamilton, who is at our flagship church in Kansas City, uh, much of what we do is patterned uh, after them. They actually did this um, series back in January uh, in a different way. He writes, every temptation is a test. Actually, the word in Hebrews is basically the same word, which is why people struggle about what's going on. Every temptation is a test. It's an opportunity for us and God and others to see which way we'll go. Will we take the bait or are we going to walk in the right path that leads to life? It's a test. And so what God came to give life and health and peace and joy, the devil comes to steal and kill and destroy. And so you have this battle, which the cross wins. We know how it ends. But in the meantime, this rages on to cages, to take away your full and abundant life. And the way he does that is through lies. We're going to talk more about that next week. Uh, We know this from John. The thief comes only to steal and to kill and to destroy. But Jesus says, I came that they may have life and have it how? Abundantly, to the full. That's what God has for you. But we have a war going on in our souls. Uh, The early church uh, understood that you and I, we have a soul, our character, our picker, our will. And there are three things that war against it always. There's never a time that this isn't going on. And those are, some of you all know these, the three images of the soul. The world, the flesh, and the devil. That's it. Now, I will say that the flesh has at least least three different meanings in the Bible. In the same way, uh, we have the word squash, right? And people don't think about this in the Bible. But we have squash, right? It can be a quirky little British game, right? Much like handball. It can be a very cool vegetable that you put in soups or eat. Or you can squash a bug. All that squash, Now imagine if you're reading the Bible and you come across the word squash and you say, well, don't worry about it. It's just a vegetable. Maybe. Or maybe it's one of the other two. That's how it is with flesh. Flesh can be your natural abilities. It can be your actual body. Um, It can be associated with temptation. And and so you have to be careful which way you're going to read this word. In Ephesians, Paul writes... Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil, the snares, the traps of the devil. For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of his present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Things that you might not be able to see. So John Mark Comer, in his best-selling book, he says, the devil's strategy 
is this. Deceitful ideas that play to disordered desires, the flesh, that are normalized in a sinful society, the world. That's how he puts it. And then he graphs it out like this. We have deceptive ideas, right? Which is the devil sends it to our flesh, which we agree with or linger on to. And then we find that, well, it's not that big a deal. Everybody's doing it. That's the world. Now, what I have to struggle with and what I'll invite you to struggle with as well is that for Jesus, the one we say we follow, the devil's real for Jesus. And so I have to do something with that. And so because he believes it, I believe it too. It's also been my experience. So Jesus writes really clearly about this in John eight forty four. He says, you belong, he's talking to Pharisees, by the way, religious people. You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, to be fair, Jesus is being a little spicier here than normal because they had just basically challenged his legitimacy of his birth. If you go back and read the context. So he's just like, well, if we're talking about fathers, let's talk about fathers. But here's the thing about the devil. The devil's not in hell. The devil's here. Devil knows scripture. If you're paying attention, the devil knows the church. The devil's around. So then we, according to uh, Peter, we have to discipline ourselves. We have to keep alert. Right? It's, it's not just out some little, you know, red suit. He says, no, like a roaring lion, your adversary, the one that's always against you, the one that's trying to pull life from you, the devil prowls around looking for someone to devour. Resist him, the scripture says. You can actually resist the devil, but it's not like you think. The problem with most Christians is that we become prideful and we're like, oh, I've got willpower. That will never work. Ever try thinking I'm not going to eat a pan of brownies at midnight? Good luck. It's just a matter of time. Can't do it directly, right? Because the line between good and evil, it cuts through the heart of every human being. It's in all of us. It's not out there. It's not the Republicans. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Libertarians. It's not even the Russians. It's Solzhenitsyn, by the way, right? So it's, it's none of those folks. It's in all of us, all of us. So this is, this is how we come to this idea. This is a really short history of temptation. So late in the 4th century, there was this young intellectual named Evagrius Ponticus. And John Mark Comer writes, he goes out into, out into the deserts of Egypt to fight the devil, you know, like you do. Just, you know, that's what you're going to do. And the, and the story was that he was going to do like Jesus did and actually confront the devil in the desert head on, and he intended to follow Jesus' example. Now, what he says is that soon the word got out that there was this monk in the middle of the war against the devil in the desert, and apparently the rumor was he was winning. And so people started flooding into the desert trying to find Evagrius Ponticus. And before his death, there was a fellow monk by the name of Lucius who asked him to write down his strategy to overcome the devil. And as a result, Evagoras wrote uh, a short book called Talking Back, a monastic handbook for combating demons. Best subtitle ever. <laughs> right? So says Comer. Right? So for Evagrius, this was about fighting against your thoughts, your thought patterns, your internal narratives, about your internal belief structure. And so he, he was, it started out with like eight thoughts or eight temptations. temptations. And so, but, but think of it this way. He says, for Evagrius, thinking about how to see a sexy body on Instagram or TikTok 
isn't just a thought, actually. It's a thought with a sender. It's a thought from someone else who intends your destruction, that intends your harm, intends to blow up your life. And so his writings, maybe you actually can, can feel that. You actually know that that happens in your life. You're just going along, and all of a sudden you have this weird thought. You're like, where'd that come from? So he says it's the eight evil thoughts or the eight terrible temptations, and finally it comes down to the seven deadly sins. You know these. We, these are like foundational sins, all things that people struggle with. Um, if you know them, say them with me. Lust, gluttony, greed. Now this is interesting. Sloth, Adam Hamilton also talks about it as indifference. It's just, eh, whatever. I don't care. There's a problem in the world. I'm not going to do anything about it. Right? It's, it's the opposite of resistance. Five, envy, anger. But let, let's not make a mistake. You don't have to, uh, as Dr. King would say, you know, violence of fist, tongue, or heart. Irritation can get you there as long as it breaks relationship. If you don't ever want to see anybody and you're going to get isolated because everybody irritates you, you're, you're in a dangerous spot. And then lastly, of course, pride. We all know this. And so I asked the high school kids, given, given this, this has been around a while now, do you think because of tech and other things, is it harder to be a parent or a child today? This is what they said. Uh, and you're really the first people on the planet that have lived like this. And so it, it made me wonder, do you think it's harder to be a kid with this new technology or a parent trying to parent this new technology? I would definitely say parent. I, I feel like it's hard for both, but especially a parent, it's very hard to monitor your kids' online activity, especially when things like YouTube kids are supposed to be filtered and safe videos for kids. And a lot of times, like, things can leak through. Like, I've, I work at a Mother's Day Out um, over the summer, and I've had coworkers tell me horror stories of how they've put on, like, Peppa Pig episodes on YouTube, and halfway through, it's been, like, a scary image and the kids would not be able, like, they couldn't get the kids to stop crying. So I feel like, as a parent, it's very hard to not only monitor what your kid consumes, but what your kid puts out. There are, are only, like, so many, like, locks you can put on technology before people find a way to get around them. So when, when I talk about this, friends, know I'm always preaching to myself first. And, and really, I, with all seriousness, I thank God that I got done before all this hit. When my boys are 24 and 27, we started in the cusp of it. But, I mean, it's, it's rough. It's rough out there. So I'm not beating on anybody. I'm just trying to raise awareness, particularly for those of us who aren't in that fight day to day in the way that many of you are. Because the phone, your supercomputer that you have in your hand, it's different. It's changed the way the world works, particularly here in Edmond. And that is that you now have unlimited access to knowledge. You just do with really no training of what to do with that knowledge, no ability to um, know what to watch, what not to watch, other than Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, if you even know that reference anymore. Right? Andy Crouch, in his book, he says, technology is good at serving human beings. It does almost nothing to actually form human beings in the things that make them worth serving and saving. So yeah, there is all kinds of knowledge, but is it worth knowing? Have you ever noticed on your iPhone, if you have your iPhone, you might just turn it over and look on the back. It probably looks like the back of my Mac. I love my Mac. Do you notice there's a bite out of the Apple? Genesis 3. We have a thirst for knowledge, and that's, that's a good thing. It's not a bad thing. 
What is really rough is that do not forfeit your guides that can teach you how to handle that knowledge. And quite frankly, most people either don't value it or don't have access to it. So for me, and I'm just talking for me, when I was about five, uh, my dad was a pastor at Prattville, Oklahoma, uh, in the United Methodist Church, and one of the congregants uh, created this painting for him of Jesus um, going to the cross with the crown of thorns. And so what I do is I keep that painting right above my computer so that Jesus is the Lord and the editor and the sayer of what I see on my computer. Does that make sense? Because there are things that Jesus wants me to know. And quite frankly, there's all kinds of things I can do now as your pastor and things I can share with you. There's no way I could have done 10 years ago. I just couldn't have read that much that fast. But Jesus then oversees what comes into my life over that computer. It's very helpful to me. John Mark Homer writes, he says, Our deepest desires, usually to become people of goodness and love, are often sabotaged by the stronger service level desires of our flesh. And, and this, this is the thing that we don't put together often. And that is, we want to be good, but instant gratification is so much stronger. It just is. And so we have to create strategies to deal with that reality. Because Jesus came to destroy the devil's work and to set all of us free. All of us. To be able to choose good, to choose love, to choose life. That's why Jesus came. Because without him, you can't even do that. And, and so we need help. We need guides. We need people to help us understand what to do with the knowledge we have access to. And that's why I'm grateful for Tracy Foster. She's the founder of Screen Sanity up in Kansas City. Um, and this was an interview she did about a year ago. So while technology can do amazing things for our kids, and we're so grateful for that, it really is so much information, so much access, um, that unfortunately it can almost take what our most innate temptation or predisposition is and allow us to just go down that path. So different kids have different proclivities, but if you're likely to struggle with pornography, it is not just there for the taking, it is actually attacking you. It is coming at you. We've talked with teens who say multiple times a day they get DMs in their social media accounts from pornographic sites. That's really hard. If a kid's trying to stand guard and live in a purer way, but that's attacking them, that's really hard. Or if there are kids who are more inclined to feel insecure about their body image, they can go on to TikTok and start looking at fitness videos and soon be spiraled into videos that are encouraging disordered eating. So it's almost take your poison of what all of us have different areas of natural challenge um, and then layer on this type of access and not just access, but those algorithms really do frequently pull us more in to those things, which just makes the fight of staying clear of it so much harder. Yeah. So when I was 14, if I wanted to see an adult image, 14-year-old boys do, by the way, I would have to really go search that out or, or go to sort of a seedy area and hope not to get caught to try to get that. Today, I can be in fourth hour and I get a direct message. That's what a DM is. And, and it's, in, it's in front of me in class. It's a different day, friends. It's just a different day. And TikTok has an algorithm that whatever, even by the millisecond, if you look at one image longer than another, guess what? The next image is what you looked at longer. And so if I'm a seventh grade girl and I see a skinny person that's supposed to be attractive and I go, huh, the next image I have is someone just a little skinnier. And again and again. That's how it works. It's designed to do that. 
It's a different day. So I, I want to I move now. We all know temptation, but what we often don't consider is the actual damage it does on the other end, much of which we would never see. In 2023, the average age children were exposed to pornography was 12, the same time they get their phone. 12 years of age. 41% during the school day. That's not the school's fault. It's just, I know, so this is what I hear over and over again. I gave my kid a phone so they would be safe at school. More than half reported seeing adult content accidentally. They weren't looking for it. It just showed up. 15% saw, they were babies. They're less than 10, they're in single digits. And this stuff's coming at them. Again, Tracy Foster. Age that our kids are exposed to porn now, it's directly going down with the average age of when kids get a phone. And so it is really toxic for kids at that age to be seeing this type of content, especially because I just want to acknowledge, as awkward as it may be, the type of exposure to pornography that we grew up with, where you see a magazine or something like that, that would be considered quaint today. But kids are getting pulled into things that are so heavy, that are so violent. Um, and it's really rewiring their brains and causing a lot of other side effects from it. Yep. Um, we, I don't have time to go into this, but if you want to look at birth rates in America and around the world, particularly in places like Japan, they're dropping like a stone. Pornography's taken over uh, young people's lives so much they don't even choose to have person to person relations anymore. They don't need it. And so people just aren't having kids anymore. The common sense media, well, not at all, obviously, but it's, it's very different. The common sense media study found that 84%, this, is, this was horrifying to me, 84% of the pornographic images children viewed depicted violence, rape, or choking to the point where they almost passed out. And that's normative for them. That's the first images they see. So Dr. Joe Court, uh, PhD, says parents should be looking through their children's phones every day. Looking through, not shaming, not shaming. Shaming is going to do you no good here, friends. But rather, let's have a conversation about what you saw. Kids have to have a way to process. They have to have a safe person to talk to about this stuff. Because here's the thing. Knowledge, it can be great. But freedom without self-mastery, that's a disaster. That's a disaster waiting to happen. Because we haven't trained anybody what to do with this knowledge. So we come to the problem of temptation, the very real problem. And that is, and you all know this without me telling you, that desire only leads to more desire. Those of you who've been around me a long time know that I can't eat just one. Of the Pringles. Remember that commercial? It's true. That hasn't changed. I will not eat them here. That would be gross. Right? No, but Pringles has it down. I mean, they know the reality. Desire only leads to more desire. And so we sin because we believe a lie about what will make us happy. I have eaten an entire can of Pringles. I was not happy. I had heartburn. Right? And here's the thing. If I don't feel good, my family doesn't enjoy it. And you, when you sin, you don't sin in a vacuum either even if you don't see the results. So that when we yield to temptation, untold pain and suffering follow even when we don't see it. I'm going to show you a four-minute video. It's longer than I would like, but it's powerful, it's disturbing, and you need to know this is local. This is Oklahoma City, and we're a part of this really important work. This is a young girl named Nixie. It's from the Care Center. I'm Nixie. I'm 17 years old. I like to draw a lot. Nixie is such a cool kid. She's super funny, um, super just kind of spunky. I, I have like at least five cats. So I was 12 and I didn't have very many friends. 
And so I joined some groups on this app called Kick. And I encountered the wrong people. I met this girl named Brooke. She introduced me to the person that was, you know, not a good dude. He had a particular method. On Mondays, we send pictures of this body part. I was struggling immensely with my self-image. I just wanted someone to make me feel like I mattered. I met someone else online and they wanted to meet up in person. I thought it was okay. I thought that I liked him. So he flew from Oregon to Oklahoma, picked me up in a rental car, took me to a hotel, some gross stuff happened, and he decided he wanted to take pictures of it. He wanted to take pictures of it. I was numb, and then I started crying. A kid in Oklahoma can be touched from anyone around the world. They can share images of child exploitation, uh, you know, all day long from everywhere, and they'd find Nixie's picture. The forensic interviewers are extremely important to our investigations because they can talk to children the way an investigator can't. And this is not your fault? It feels like it is. It isn't. And then she kind of started to have these, I guess, glimmers maybe of empowerment. And she was able to say, okay, this is not okay. I'm ready to speak up. She really just took things by the reins and was able to speak up and say everything she wanted to say. I'm asking for your help to try and figure out who these gross people are. Okay. Oh, absolutely. I'm all for that and she suddenly became very brave. And she answered all of the questions. Because now people knew, and that meant that I didn't have to keep it to myself anymore. We was able to build a case through the information that Nixie gave us, and by August 30th, I was on a flight to Oregon to arrest him. He was indicted by the grand jury in Oklahoma, I believe that Nixie pretty much was responsible for uh, his plea of guilty, which he did in November, and uh, he's just waiting sentencing now. There was an offender in the UK that was obtaining images and distributing them, and Nixie was also responsible in helping shut that down. Once she understood that her words had power, that what she says matters, once she was able to embody that power, everything changed. And she decided to tell her story and to make an impact on all of those kids that might be suffering from the same thing. So brave. So brave. Such important work the Care Center does. I want to thank Stacy for allowing us to edit that video down so we could share it with you today. Uh, we've been supporters of the Care Center since our oldest was an intern there. 
really important work. Uh, I put it in the newsletter if you want to know more about that. Um, super important. Super important to be caring for our kids. It's a different day out there. And for those of you who think what you do online doesn't matter, in the beginning you have a choice, but eventually you have a character. We just do. Now, this is not one of those sermons where like, you know, just dedicate your life to Jesus, it's going to be all right. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't. What you need to do is actually to submit yourself to God and to others in a way that where we can live together in community so that the devil doesn't get a stronghold. James, again, says, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, yes, but not alone, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. There's real power for you. We have to resist. Uh, theologian Hiroth Lacho says, even Adam, who was in a blissful state of communion with God in paradise, say it with me, he lost it all because he did not struggle. And, and the reason I use this is because this is where I live. I don't want to struggle. I don't like struggle. You don't like struggle. Life is good. Life is hard. Like, just let it go. It's going to be fine. No. So what I want to encourage you to do, these things actually do work. If you want to get on top of temptation, take a nap. Really, just rest. So many people get in trouble because they're overtired. Give. Not because your preacher says so, but because you have to fight greed. That's the best way to fight greed is to actually be generous. Forgive. That's the only way that anger never gets front stage. These things are for your good. Rest, give, and forgive. And then stay in community because the first trap of the devil is to isolate you. You know, I've never known a Sunday school class that got up together on Sunday morning in the sunshine and went off and, you know, knocked over a 7-Eleven. It's not how that works. There's real power in community. When we rest, we trust God with our lives. Dietrich Bonhoeffer says it like this. Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive will be the power of sin over him. Sin wants to remain unknown. It shuns the light. And the darkness of the unexpressed poisons the whole being of a person. So stay in community. It might just save your life or somebody else's. It's that big a deal. Because Christ came that you might have life and have it how? Abundantly to the full. And it awaits you in and through one another. Amen. I hope you'll be back next week as we look at truth. um, How to tell the difference between uh, fiction and falsehood. So let's pray the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen.